Father, we thank You for Your Word, and it is our desire to be able to live it out. But apart from, again, Your grace undergirding us, quickening the Word to our hearts, transforming us, uh, we cannot achieve even what Your Word commands. And so with Augustine, we say, enable what You command. And Father, we come to You confident that You love to do just that. Sanctify this, Your people, through Your preaching of Your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I don't know if you've noticed it. Uh, I have definitely noticed it. Maybe it's just the circles that I run in, but uh, there is a tendency to disparage logic and uh, to think that it's not very spiritual. You know, that's a sterile kind of approach to life. Uh, and Reformed people don't tend to do that. They tend to be pretty logical people because it's the most consistent Christian system that is out there. But you know what? I have found even some Reformed people in the last 20, 25 years or so have actually said in print that the Bible has contradictions, but we just accept these contradictions by faith. Well, to me, that is blasphemy. You just cannot do that. I had a, a buddy just this past week, this past Wednesday, uh, he, he wrote to me, and he's been arguing with me on a number of different issues, but he said, are we not shown Christ as the greatest contradiction of human logic? And I immediately replied, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, I could have just stopped there because if logic is irrelevant, then he shouldn't be talking to me because I can't understand him apart from logic. Uh, uh, really, there can be no discourse without logic. But I went on to say in my email, there is a vast chasm of difference between mystery and a clear-cut logical contradiction. For you to say that Christ is the greatest contradiction of human logic means that he is the greatest falsehood. I bring up this issue of logic because Paul's going to be drawing a whole bunch of logical implications from the gospel he's been preaching in chapters 1 through 11. In fact, this book is absolutely chock full of logic. He slices and he dices uh, his adversaries who uh, bring in all kinds of logical objections to the gospel, and he just shreds them and shows how irrational their positions uh, really are. In fact, uh, just as a side note, some of you may not realize this, but uh, there were some early lawyers who, as they were being mentored in early America, uh, one of their exercises consistently was they had to go through the book of Romans and show every logical argument that Paul was using because they said this is absolutely essential to know how to be engaging in debate. Uh, it, it's just a marvelous, marvelous book. In fact, I've got um, a tape series by a guy who uh, does a college-level course just teaching logic from the Bible, but Romans is a big part uh, of that. And if you've never studied logic you really need to include that in your curriculum. Logic is really important for, for human discourse. Anyway, what Paul does in chapters 12 through 16 is he, he's going to systematically demonstrate that our lives need to be consistent with the gospel. That's what the whole of chapters 12 through 16 is about. So in chapters 1 through 11, you've got this masterful, masterful description of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then in chapters 12 through 16, he says, hey guys, you need to be living consistently with this gospel. And he does just exactly like he does in every epistle, doctrine in the first half of the epistle, then there is the application in, in, the, in the second half. 
And if we do not see chapters 12 through 16 as flowing from the gospel, we have completely read those, misread those chapters. And yet I've seen books that miss this all the time. Miss this all the time. So Paul begins chapter 12 with these words, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Whenever you see the word, therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. <laughs> Uh, it's a logical indicator that he's about to make some kind of a logical conclusion uh, from something. And in this case, the word therefore is the hinge upon which the whole book of Romans uh, turns. He's saying in light of the gospel I've been telling you about in chapters 1 through 11, I beseech you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he gives a whole bunch more beseechments. He says, I beseech you to do this and this and this. These all flow out of the gospel. <clears throat> okay, I've, uh, I think I've repeated myself enough times uh, on that point that you, that you get the point. But that means if you do not see the doctrine of civil government in chapter 13 as flowing from the gospel of Jesus Christ, you either don't understand the gospel or you don't know how to apply the gospel. One of those two. Because Paul definitely sees it as flowing out of the gospel. You see, one of the problems with modern Christianity is not only that it truncates God's law, it truncates the gospel. And one of the things we're about uh, in this church is we want to preach the whole counsel of God, the whole law of God and all of its implications, and the whole gospel in all of its implications. The gospel reaches to all of life because sin has reached to all of life through the fall of Adam. And so the gospel brings God's grace far as the grace, uh, far as the uh, curse is found. And the reason Paul has to beseech us, he says, I beseech you, therefore, you can translate it, I beg you, you know, is because we tend to be illogical and it distresses Paul when we're illogical. He says, what are you guys doing? You can't be acting like this. You've got to be consistent in your Christian life. For him, logical inconsistency was wrong. Read the, the larger catechisms, exposition sometime of the Ten Commandments and you will see that it considers and it gives scriptures to prove it it considers logical fallacies and uh, illogical arguments to be a violation of God's moral code it, it sees it as being very very foundational so anyway that's just as a, a side note so I want to challenge you this morning to, to seek to be more and more consistent with the gospel than to use this as ammo to help other Christians to be more consistent, be reformers, and encourage them to live in, in, in light of that. So when somebody comes to you and says, ah, we don't need to be talking about politics or about this or that, uh, we just need to be focusing on the gospel, what you need to do is tell them, well, it seems like Romans is a lot about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Paul thinks that the doctrine of civil government in Romans 13 must flow from the gospel and we must be applying the gospel to it so don't let them off the hook the gospel applies to everything and we're going to try to show that first area that this logical therefore points to is to the individual's life verse one again i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that you present your bodies whoa 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 whoa, whoa. some people might think bodies what does that have to do with the gospel but he says exactly that, I, I, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, 
which is your reasonable, and the Greek word there is logikain, which is your logical service, and the word for service is latreon, which we get the word liturgy from. It's your worship. It's a spiritual act that you offer up to God. So he's saying that the only logical conclusion that you can derive from the gospel that I've been preaching to you is that you must present your physical bodies to God as a living sacrifice as a very logical act of worship. It's just a marvelous statement. Now, there's all kinds of implications that come from that. Uh, I think there's huge implications against the heresy of full preterism. Uh, If you have got friends who are caught up in that, uh, there are several in this city, several that I know outside this city. Uh, And We won't deal with um, the heresy per se other than this one little point here that they don't think that our bodies have any any value whatsoever. In fact, we want to escape from these bodies, a number of them. Uh, have said this, but here he says, our bodies have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. They are holy. They need to be offered up to God. They're an acceptable sacrifice uh, to the Lord. And they're eventually going to be transformed in the resurrection. Now contrast that with the following two heretical statements that resemble Greek dualism more than they do the Bible. Full preterist John Bray said, we're not interested in this old body surviving. Well, I'm sorry, John, but uh, God is interested in our bodies. He has redeemed them, and he is going to transform them at the second coming. No way, another full preterist said, our emotional attachment to our bodies will be no different than our attachment to those body parts we cut off and discarded last week, like hair and fingernails, etc. A pastor here in town said uh, in print that Christians should eagerly wait to be set free from our bodies. But, you know, the Reformation gospel is not about escaping. It's about transforming, transforming everything in life. In fact, we're eventually going to get a new heavens and a new earth. Why? Because of the redemption of Jesus Christ. And so the first implication of this passage is that God is not a Greek dualist. Okay? Uh, Surprise, surprise. Not a Greek dualist who says, okay, spirit, that's important. The mental, that's important. But the physical, not only is that unimportant, it's even evil as something we want to get rid of. He is, God does not think that way. By the way, it's not just full preterists who have bought into this. Dispensationalism, a number of authors have pointed out, has this Greek dualism at its very heart because they're constantly making this distinction between the physical, which applies to Israel, and the spiritual as if it's ethereal, it's non-physical, that applies to the church. But what Paul is saying here is that our bodies can become more and more spiritual right now and eventually will be totally spiritual in the resurrection. And he does not mean ethereal. That's a Greek notion. You need to get that out of your heads completely. He does not mean ethereal. In the Bible, spiritual does not mean non-physical. It means to be controlled by the Spirit. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 44 says at the second coming we're going to be given spiritual bodies. Now, in history there have been some heretics who have said that means we don't we won't have bodies. Well, he's not saying we're going to have non-bodily bodies. Uh, Paul's good enough at logic, he knows not to make uh, contradictions like that. That would be as silly as saying that a steam engine is uh, made up of steam. Oh, there's no iron in a steam engine. It's a steam engine. It's made up of steam, okay? Now, obviously, we know that's silly, 
Uh, it's called a steam engine because it's powered by steam. It's characterized by steam. It's, it's, it, 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 it's uh, moving by steam. And in the same way, in the resurrection, we're going to have spiritual bodies, not because they're not going to be physical, but we'll have spiritual bodies because they will be controlled by the Spirit, sanctified by the Spirit, moved by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. And what he's saying here is that more and more, even down here below, our bodies can be more and more under the influence of the Spirit. They can be spiritual. They can be a spiritual act of worship uh, before uh, before the Lord. And so uh, these first verses already blow the cover of modern evangelicalism. It shows that the gospel has implications for the physical world, yes, even for our bodies. The gospel cares about healing. It cares about the resurrection. It cares how you use your body. So let's think about this a little bit more deeply. If our bodies have been redeemed by God, they belong to God, we're supposed to offer them up as a sacrifice to God, well, logically, that means they don't belong to us, right? I mean, it's just a simple, logical conclusion. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were consumed by fire, so even if you wanted to take them back, you couldn't you know, get onto that altar and try to get back your sacrifice. It was completely taken up, totally devoted to the Lord. We can't get that sacrifice back, and yet that's what people want to do all the time with their bodies. They say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. And then instead of allowing their bodies to be used for God's pleasure, they do it only to satisfy their own fleshly, uh, their own fleshly lusts. 1 Corinthians 6 19 and 20. And he said this, so probably about three years earlier. He says, Do you not know that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So your body is God's. Your spirit is God's. Both uh, need to uh, be used for the Lord. If you've tasted of the gospel, this is the implication. Now, thirdly, our sacrifice is supposed to be a living sacrifice. That's the whole point of grace, isn't it? That's to give us life. And so he's not talking about suicide here. You know, your body's at uh, such bad work against you, you need to commit suicide. Not at all. He wants it to be a living sacrifice, living on the altar of service for him, not dead and inactive. D.L. Moody didn't think much of uh, academic degrees, uh, but I've mentioned this to you before. Uh, He said... I've got a degree that uh, I think everybody should have. It's an O&O degree. An O&O degree is out and out for Jesus. And that's what we need to be. Out and out for Jesus in everything that we do. Okay, not just in spirit, but in body. Not just in prayer, but in everything that we do. Not just in heaven, but here on earth as well. Amen? Uh, Our whole lives committed to Him. Now, another implication is that we really ought to treat our bodies with dignity and respect and care. If they belong to God, if they're His property, I think that flows from this. It matters to God what you do with your body. For instance, when you abuse your body with excessive caffeine or nicotine or a lack of sleep or in other ways you abuse your body, what you're doing is you're abusing God's property. You're, in effect, throwing a stone through the window of God's temple. That's what he calls your body. He says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, let me read that for you. 1 Corinthians 6.20 Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, 
Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So don't think that the doctrines of grace have no uh, relationship to our bodies now. The evidence of a surrendered will is a dedicated body. I think it's one of the greatest evidences of a surrendered will. We're no longer our own. <coughs> Let me just end this first section. and talks about the individual by mentioning the difference between the words conformity and transformation. Because Paul's going to be building on this distinction throughout all of the rest of these chapters. And really, you could, you could see these, these two as the differences you see down through church history. Uh, there were people who tried to escape from culture, you know, go off into a monastery or something like that. And then there were others like Aquinas who mixed the world's culture together with the Bible and they produced a synthesis. And then there's liberals, and they're totally conforming to what is uh, going on in the culture. So we're not to escape the Reformed, the genius of the Reformed faith, which is really the historical faith, is that God has called us to transform culture. Okay, so let's look at this difference between conformity and transformation. The Greek word for conformed is suske matizistha, which refers to clay being squeezed down into a mold. Now here's one translation that very literally translates this. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's conformity. And nowhere in the Bible are we said that we are supposed to be conformed to anything not even to, to Christ. Now, there is in the New King James three times where it's translated. It's a totally different Greek word, but this word being squeezed into a mold is not used uh, of the Christian. Um, a person can try to be conformed to the world, try to be conformed to Christ. That's just outward. It has no life in it. But transformation is a miraculous process that goes from the inside out. And uh, it is the Greek word metamorpho. And we get the English word metamorphosis from that. And so, you know, this transformation of a caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly, it comes straight from the Greek, metamorpho, metamorphosis. And Paul says that's what should be happening to us. If we have truly embraced the doctrines of chapters 1 through 11, there is going to be a process of transformation in, into the image of Christ. <clears throat> Outward conformity to Christ does not make you a Christian. Okay, going to church does not make you a Christian any more than walking into a garage makes you an automobile. Okay, you just happen to be where automobiles are. You happen to be where Christians uh, are. Uh, you could squeeze a caterpillar. You say, wow, that's a beautiful mold of a butterfly. Let's uh, squeeze this caterpillar down into this uh, mold. All you'd get is mush, right? You'd kill the, the butterfly. Uh, it has to go through this transformational process of metamorphosis. And so we should not see the contrast as a choice between conformity to the world and conformity to Christ. That's simply the difference between publicans, they conform to the world, right? And evangelical Pharisees. They're trying to conform to what the expectations of the church are uh, outwardly. Uh, publicans conform to the world, Pharisees conform to the expectations of others. And rather, metamorphosis is a miraculous inside-out transformation that the Spirit produces. And so it's really the difference between a clay image of a butterfly and a real butterfly. The gospel brings life. It doesn't just bring a doctrine of life. It actually brings life. 
Now, we could go on in this chapter to show how the gospel produces humility in the individual, gives gifts, spiritual gifts to the individual, causes us to hate the things that God hates and to love the things that God loves. Verses 3 all the way through to verse 21 talks about what this metamorphosis looks like. How does the gospel transform our lives? It's a fabulous, fabulous chapter. By the way, last week we, um, we looked at the exercise of thanksgiving and how powerful it is in overcoming bitterness in our lives. Well, here's a whole bunch more exercises he gives in verses 9 through 21, and he ends by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What he's doing is he's applying the gospel to all of life. He's saying, I want you to be metamorphosized, okay? Now, as we go through the book and we see Paul applying this to other areas of life, we see it doesn't just affect the individual, it affects the family and the church and society at large, and eventually there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so let's apply it to the church as a whole. If individuals are being transformed by the gospel, you ought to expect to see that the church as a whole is going to be different, right? Look at verses 4 through 5. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So Paul is saying that the gospel does not make us to go to one extreme where it's just me, God, and the Bible, individualism, and we reject the church, or the other extreme where we're so focused on the church that the individual needs are lost in the equation. He says it's really both and. If God has redeemed you, and um, if He's redeemed others, then you should be concerned not just in you, although you should be concerned about that, but you should be concerned about the others that he has purchased as well. He's purchased the church with his own precious blood, and we need to be interested in the whole church. Look at chapter 12, 6 through 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace, and I want you to notice that grace is needed for those spiritual gifts, according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry, let us use it in our ministering, he who teaches in teaching, etc., So if God has given an individual a gift of uh, service or ministry or something like that, there's got to be somebody to minister to. Giving you the gift of teaching, there's got to be people who are hungry for that teaching. Giving you the gift of leadership, there's got to be people to lead. In other words, every single spiritual gift has been given with the body in mind, and we cannot be loners for Christ. We've got to be connected in some way. In fact, if we are loners for Christ... What Paul is saying is we're being inconsistent with the whole nature of the gospel. The gospel was designed to implant us into the body of uh, Jesus Christ. One of the things that Paul um, really presses home in verses 3 through 16 is that body life is so important. Here's what R.C. Sproul said. It is both foolish and wicked to suppose that we will make much progress in sanctification if we isolate ourselves from the visible church. Indeed, it is commonplace to hear people declare that they don't need to unite with the church to be a Christian. They claim that their devotion is personal and private, not institutional or corporate. This is not the testimony of the great saints of history. It is the confession of fools. And he's saying it's the confession of fools because it is utterly foolish inconsistency with the gospel. The gospel he preached, if you're logically consistent instead of being foolish, you're going to see we are connected by God's grace irretrievably and for all eternity with the bride, with the church of Jesus Christ. 
Now, Paul says, in effect, in light of all that God has done for you and your redemption, everything I've told you in chapters 1 through 11, you should be stirred up to fervent love for one another in the church. There was um, a dad and son that were on vacation, and they were visiting one church, and uh, they were just out in the foyer, and the, the, the kid was looking up at all of this bronze plaques of all of the people who had died in various American wars, and he's looking and he's asking, Dad, what are all these names for? And his dad said, oh, those are all of the people who died in the service. And the kid looked a bit. He said, is it the morning service or the evening service? <laughs> but, you know, there are churches that can be killing. And we need to make sure our church is so filled with God's grace that out of our innermost being would flow rivers of living water, you know? Some, some people like the evangelical Pharisees or ch- their churches are wanting people to be squished into a mold. And, and the faster the better, right? We're not waiting for God's sovereign grace to be transforming people. No, we're trying to make them uh, into butterflies and what we're really doing is we're killing them in the process. We've got to make sure we don't do that. Be consistent with the gospel. So do you rejoice with those who jo- rejoice? Weep with those who weep? Verse 15. Do you pray over, bring healing to, fight side by side with, serve others? If not, let's commit ourselves to being more logically consistent with the gospel in our body life. Now, I want to spend a good deal of time on the implications of the gospel to society as a whole. He tells us how we ought to live with our neighbors in chapters 12, uh, verses 17 through 21, and then again chapter 13, 8 through 10. He tells us how we ought to relate to the civil government, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and how the civil government itself ought to run, how Christians in civil government ought to run their government. Now, here's a point, I think, where you could challenge people's eschatology. Ask them, does your view of Romans chapter 13 flow out of the gospel of Romans chapters 1 through 11? Does it flow out of the gospel? How do God's claims over society relate to the therefore which begins this section? Well, they do indeed relate, and they very logically relate, if chapters 9 through 11 is talking about entire nations being converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there, and I used to be one of them, who thought that um, there was only going to always be a tiny minority of Christians in any given nation, and it's only talking about the church, it's not talking about nations, and it's not talking about Israel getting converted. And as a result of their view there, it distorts their view of chapter 13. And uh, some of the Lutherans who were the most consistent appliers of this particular interpretation, their interpretation of Romans 13 did not require grace in the government, just said, you need to submit. You need to submit. If you had to submit under Nero, which is the greatest possible tyrannical regime ever, then you've got to submit under any government uh, that is out there. And they say it's obvious. Look at chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So they taught, you can't resist civil government, period. That's not what the text says. It says you cannot resist God's authority. And a civil government 
only has authority that God has explicitly delegated to that government. It cannot arrogate authority to itself. In fact, the Greek in verse 1 is quite strong. It says, for there is no authority if not from God. In other words, if, if God has not delegated the authority, the authority does not exist. The government does not have that authority. So what authority is it that we submit to? It's God's authority. On my interpretation, it will take the grace of God to accomplish what God mandates in these verses. Because these verses are speaking of very limited government of magistrates who are passionate to serve King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's not going to happen through politics alone. It's only going to happen as the gospel of Jesus Christ is applied in those areas. It's one of the reasons why I'm thrilled with capital ministries that they're seeking to reach now, politicians for Jesus Christ. I think it's at least a start. Now, on the other interpretation, there's no need for the gospel to reach the civil magistrate. They assume all civil magistrates are going to be like Nero, perhaps some better. But if we had to give unreserved total submission to the most wicked magistrate ever, we have to give total blind submission to everybody. So your view of the gospel in chapters 1 through 11 profoundly affects your view of chapter 13. And what I believe, let me give you a summary of chapters 9 to 11. What I believe that they are teaching is that God has not cast away Israel completely. During this period of time, there's a long period of time he talks about, there's going to be a ton, tiny remnant of Israel always being saved. Never going to be any year of history from Christ's first coming to his second coming when there's not ex at least some uh, Jewish Christians. But then he says, when a majority of Christian nations become discipled, Israel as a nation will become uh, converted because they will become jealous of the gospel. And once they get converted, it's just going to blow things wide open in terms of the application of the gospel to all of the nations of the world. It's going to bring in a time of tremendous peace. That's what I believe chapters 9 through 11 is talking about. Colossians 1 is another passage. Lots of passages that talk about this. Psalm 72 and others. But Colossians 1 indicates that Christ on the cross paid the price to reconcile all things to Himself, including, it says, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. He's not talking about reconciling demonic thrones, principalities, and powers. They're never going to be saved. Scripture is quite clear on that. What's the only other option? The only other option is he's talking about reconciling by his blood earthly thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. And so God's claims on society as a whole, they definitely flow out of his discussion of redemption in the earlier chapters just as much as it does for the individual. Well, if that's going to be accomplished, it has to start with individuals. We're never going to see long-term change uh, long uh, uh, for good simply by imposing another presidency. And that's what evangelicals keep hoping for. If we can only elect another president, it's just not going to make a difference. It might make a difference for a few years, but it's not going to be long-term. Chapter 12 must come before chapter 13. Okay? Let's look, first of all, at our responsibilities as citizens. Before you can expect to bring the civil government under the crown rights of King Jesus, that's chapter 13, Citizens need to come under the crown rights of King Jesus in chapter 12. Okay, Before we can have godly civil government, we've got to have manifestations of godly self-government. And um, what a better way to learn self-government than to do the exercises in chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. I mean, those are fantastic principles to make 
your kids better citizens of the family, to make families better citizens of, of the church and of society. They're fantastic, fantastic uh, catalog. And he ends there by saying not simply that, that we're to overcome evil with good, not simply endure evil, but overcoming evil with good. So he's calling us to win the battle with the gospel, not simply to endure the battle. Now take a look at chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So I think you can see, if we're to have a holy government, we've got to have a godly citizenry, and that's exactly what the founding fathers in America said. They said, this republic will not endure if we cease to be a Christian nation. Following words are inscribed on the Department of Justice building in Washington, D.C. Justice in the life and conduct of the state is possible only as it first resides in the hearts and souls of the citizens. So citizens have got to start by saying, Lord, I am yours, and I want to live my life unreservedly for you. I want to live under the crown rights of King Jesus. And uh, in this passage, Paul does not pit grace against law. He does not pit faith against law or love against law. He says, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. But uh, it will one day not only transform individuals, but it's going to transform humanistic civil governments into godly, self-controlled, model civil governments. Uh, Augustine, he was a wonderful, wonderful um, church father from the 400s A.D. He, he pointed out that apart from grace... States are simple, simply legal thieves and murderers. He was just being quite blunt there. Apart from grace, they are legal thieves and murderers. They are not ministers of God unless they submit themselves to God. Now, pagans sometimes do submit in some areas. But uh, God calls them bestial empires when they do their own will. Now, the way many people interpret chapter 13 is a mockery of Paul's logic. Let me substitute the name Idi Amin into Romans chapter 13 and read it for you and show you how ridiculous that interpretation really is. Idi Amin was a wicked dictator over Uganda who did everything he could to obliterate the church. Uh, he hunted them down and killed them, raped, uh, raped them. He even ate some of them in his cannibalistic uh, orgies that he went through. Uh, he was a terror to good works, and he rewarded evil works. He continually surrounded himself with evil people and was the exact opposite of what this passage here says that he should be. He was a persecutor just like Nero was. So let me read this passage, substituting his name. Let every soul be subject to Idi Amin, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists Idi Amin resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist Idi Amin will bring judgment on themselves. For Idi Amin is not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of Idi Amin? Then do what is good. You will have praise from Idi Amin, for he is God's minister to you for good. 
But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject to idiomene, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for he is God's minister attending continually to this very thing. I think you get the point. Idiomene was not a terror to evil. He was a terror to good. He did everything he could to obliterate it. He was demonically possessed. He hated uh, the church. And so he did the exact opposite of what a magistrate should do. So if this spoke of unqualified submission to civil governments, it would be contradicting itself. And I think the only interpretation that makes sense is that the gospel of Jesus Christ must reach civil magistrates if they are to serve in the government the way that they ought to. In fact, Paul says that was his commission, to bring the gospel to Israel, to kings, and to the Gentiles. That was, his, that was his commission. He had three things. We leave out the bringing the gospel to kings. But his gospel was to bring the gospel, his commission was to bring the gospel to Israel, to kings, and to Gentiles. And so the gospel of chapters 1 through 8, it is a powerful gospel. It is sufficient to reach the hearts of kings. And chapters 9 through 11 guarantee as an ironclad promise that all nations are eventually going to submit to the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. And when you take that interpretation, suddenly chapter 13 becomes a mandate for living out the gospel in the civil sphere. It's showing the calling of a civil magistrate to love small government, to love justice, to praise the good, to condemn and punish evil, and to be very, very self-consciously a servant of Jesus Christ in everything that he does. Now, I won't have the time to preach on everything in these chapters, but let me give you some hints on how you can do some study for yourself and apply the gospel in every area of life. Chapter 13, 11 through 14, shows how the gospel that was outlined by Paul in the earlier chapters gives us an entirely different perspective on history and expectations for the future. See, the cross reverses history. You know, people think, oh, it's just going to be another repeat of history. No, 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 no. The cross reverses history. Everything was going downhill, worse and worse, into apostasy up to the time of the cross, and the cross reversed that, and from that time on, the church is growing. What did Jesus promise? I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Of the increase of His government of peace, there will be no end. Okay, He's going from glory to glory, constantly moving forward. Paul says, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believe. So we shouldn't be anticipating increasing darkness. We should be anticipating increasing light. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. And then verses 12 and 13 say that if that's true, we need to be acting as if we are walking in the daylight. He's talking about logical consistency with the good news that he's outlined for planet Earth. It should affect our expectations. In fact, it should give us faith to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for Him. What are some other logical implications? Well, chapter 14 says the gospel should transform the way we exercise rights and liberties. Do we have rights and liberties? Absolutely, yes, we do. But we should see them as extensions of the gospel, not as excuses for humanism. So many people exercise their rights and their liberties in a self-centered way. Okay, they, they, they just 
what the gospel is doing is it's saying, look, you're not your own, but I've given you rights and liberties, and you need to use those rights and liberties for King Jesus and for each other. Now, you read that chapter in light of the gospel, it's like, wow. It completely flips upside down our whole perspective on rights and liberties. Chapter 15 says that the gospel should transform the way we look at tribulation, should give us supernatural joy, and why not? Why not? It's a victorious gospel. Romans 8 had already said that there isn't anything in all of creation, whether it's an idiomene, whether it's death itself, that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Same chapter speaks of Paul's enthusiasm for evangelism and miracles, giving as debtors of God's grace, planning for the future. You know, the way you give ought to flow out of the gospel. Paul says, oh, don't give, you know, with your arm being twisted. Give as people grateful for the gospel motivated, enthusiastic, not of a compulsion, but of grace. Chapter 16 applies the gospel to fellowship, ministry, other issues. And even Paul's greetings, I, I love his greetings in chapter 16, they are saturated with a realization that everything that they do comes from Christ. And so there, there isn't any verse in chapter 16 that doesn't make some allusion to Christ's work on their behalf, their work for each other, or for Christ. Chapter 16, verses 17 through 19 offers up the proposition that we ought not to be serving ourselves, but serving Christ. Very logical. He's purchased us. We don't belong to ourselves. So he says there, verse 18, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. What a contradiction of life if he's purchased us to be living our whole lives selfishly for what we want. Paul wants them to have such a clear demarcation of the difference between Christ and those that he has purchased and Satan and those hosts that belong to him that we see the, the, the gospel makes a radical difference on all of our thinking and everything that we do. Verse 20 is an allusion to Genesis 3.15 which prophesied that Satan would bruise Christ's heel but Christ would crush his head with that heel. Okay, and that was fulfilled on the cross. There are other passages that say it was fulfilled at the cross. But I want you to notice the interesting wording that Paul has here. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. How can both be true? You know, was that fulfilled at the cross or is it fulfilled in these Roman Christians? Well, they can both be true because in principle, Satan was crushed and destroyed on the cross that principle is being applied over history progressively more and more and ultimately will be finished at the second coming. And you can really apply this to most doctrines. Uh, most doctrines have something definitively accomplished at the cross, our salvation, everything else, progressively being applied and ultimately being achieved at, uh, at, the, at the second coming. Uh, and... Um, those early uh, Christian saints did indeed see Satan on the retreat as Rome, the Roman Empire became more and more Christianized. By one early report, there were more Christians than pagans prior to the time of Constantine. And this is still under the times of persecution. That's how fast it went forward. You read Athanasius and some of these people, it's because they were living by faith. They could see the victory of Christ's kingdom. They were gripped by it. They, they were passionate to see it being advanced. Now, there are many other implications. The redemption of Jesus, which we have not touched on. We won't take the time, but too many people see the gospel as a ticket to heaven. It is that, but it's so much more. It's the reversal of everything that Adam lost 
through the fall. Now, on the back of your outlines, I've given you a, um, a little chart that shows the impact of the fall on every area of life. And so you can see on the first line there that, um, that the fall impacted man spiritually. Why? Because the fall separated Adam and Eve from God. There was an alienation. So what does the gospel do? It reverses that. And we shouldn't feel that separation. God is calling us more and more by the gospel into intimacy with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fall impacted man physically, mentally, emotionally, volitionally, volitionally. And the wonder of the gospel is that there's a transformation that takes place, transforming of our mind, of our emotions, our wills. You cannot just ignore your emotions. Their eyes are affected by the fall or they're affected by the gospel. You've got to sanctify your emotions to God. So look at the rest of the chart there. Gospel removes the false coverings of religiosity that Adam tried to concoct and enables us to be open and free before God. We don't have to hide the fact that we're sinners. We're secure in justification. Okay, we're secure in His covering. We don't provide coverings for ourselves. Uh, since the fall of Adam had a motivational impact on the chart, well, we see that God is more and more transforming our motivations, not doing away with them, uh, every motivation, whether it's, um, whether it's financial or sexual or all of the different motivations in, in human factor need to be transformed uh, by His grace so that they're not self-serving, they're God-serving. Uh, since the fall impacted our goals, so does the gospel. Since the fall turned man's sense of justice upside down, well, the gospel has to reverse that, right? Restore the sense of right and wrong, sense of justice. In fact, the gospel, according to the New Testament, it rewrites those laws upon our hearts. It restores us to the law. It's, but so many people think grace is against the law. No, it restores the law, but it's by His grace, not by our own keeping. Uh, since the fall distorted social relationships between Adam and Eve, the gospel was given the power to reform marriages. It means marriages no longer have to be miserable, limping through life. No, he can come in and if you're willing to apply consistently the implications of the gospel to your marriage, your marriage can sing. It can glorify God. It can be filled with joy. Uh, where the fall brought death and murder, the gospel brings life and healing. Where the fall tore apart man's environment, Nations that are saturated with the gospel are going to be a seeing a reversal of that curse in nations, uh, I mean in, in the environment itself, and the blessings of the covenant being, being, being established. And Isaiah prophesies that, that uh, over time as the nations begin to be discipled, people are going to live longer, hundreds of years, just like they did before uh, the flood. So if you think it can't happen, then you better read what happened before the flood. It was happening even with fallen man before the flood. And it indicates that animals are going to be less dangerous at some point in history. In other words, there's going to be an impact of the gospel even on our environment to some extent. Okay, uh, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the transformations videos. Uh, whatever you think about certain aspects of it, and there are some issues that I have uh, with the, the videos, it is crystal clear that where a village or a, a city or a larger region has been thoroughly saturated with the gospel, and, and almost all of them are Christians, there is a profound impact upon the environment itself. You know, there are gardens and all of the Deuteronomy 28 blessings being poured out. And there's two provinces in Ethiopia that are over 95% evangelical Christian, solid evangelical Christian. 
And the guy I was asking him about what was happening said, oh yeah, it's just like God is blessing everything that we do. Our gardens grow better. It just seems like everything was being affected. We should not limit the power of the gospel in, uh, in history. Uh, the fall was passed on generationally from father to son. Well, then we expected the gospel ought to be reversing that, right? And, uh, and, and God does indeed say, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. In fact, it's far more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, is what Paul says. And so where the curse is passed on to the third and fourth generation, how far is the blessing passed on? It's to a thousand generations of those who love Him. I mean, this is the kind of worldview, this is the kind of vision that Paul is casting uh, for us here. And then, of course, since the fall impacted the very universe and made it groan, one of the last things that we're going to see under the reign of King Jesus at His second coming is a new heavens and a new earth. So is there not a lot to rejoice over in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think there is. And what I want to encourage you is not only to rejoice in the implications of the gospel, but try to live it out more and more consistently. None of us will be perfect prior to the second coming, but we can more and more closely be going into that as we go from faith to faith and from glory to glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for uh, the uh, complete power, the dynamite of the gospel which turns everything upside down. Father, we desire that the church would live out this gospel more consistently and have the faith to expect great things from you and to attempt great things for you. Apart from faith, you have said uh, we can do nothing and that uh, whatever is not of faith is sin. So Father, give us a clear understanding of what your promises entail so that we can indeed live by faith. Bless this, your people. Comfort them, encourage them, build them up in your most holy faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.